Today we are continuing our series, A People on Mission. A couple of weeks ago, Josh and I began a series that's kind of really fleshing out our vision and mission um, over a period of about six weeks. So as we move forward uh, in this year and beyond, what is God calling us to do? What is the vision that he is, uh, that he is infusing in us as a community, and, and how does that really flesh out in, in reality in our church? Um, and so today, uh, we are talking about um, the second part of the, the great commandment, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. If we think about the word people on mission, um, I don't know what that means to you. You know, people, people have different understandings of what it means to be on mission or to be on mission together. That's kind of one of those buzzwords these days that churches like to use. But when we talk about being a people on mission together, what that really means to us is that we are a community of people who are engaged in the mission of God or missio dei. So missio dei is a Latin term that's used um, among a lot of missionaries and kind of global workers uh, who travel cross-culturally to plant churches and to do missionary work in different areas of the world. And it has to do with the sending of God, that God came to us, uh, God sent his son, he lived among us, um, brought the, the reality of the kingdom of God here to us, um, lived among us to declare the kingdom of God and, and the salvation and redemption for the world, died uh, rose again and then sent us on this mission to continue the work that he began to be witnesses to the kingdom of God. Uh, we are a product of that mission. Uh, when Jesus established the church, he sent his disciples out to make disciples of the nations. And because of their work, we are here today. If it weren't for their obedience in, uh, in sharing the gospel with the nations around them and the surrounding peoples around them, we would not be here gathered today. And so we are a product of that mission. So when we say that we're on mission, we mean that we're actively part of this mission that God began long ago and continues today to restore what has been broken and what has been marred by sin. There's a missiologist, which is just a fancy word for somebody who dedicates themselves to missionary work. Uh, there's, there's a missiologist named David Bosch in South Africa, and he says it this way. It's not the church which undertakes mission, it's the missio dei, or the mission of God, which, con which constitutes the church. Or in a different way, he basically says, it's not so much that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. So we don't orient our mission around who we are. So it's not us who declares, like, this is who dwell churches, and this is what we're going to do. We orient ourselves around God's mission and what he is already doing and what the mission that he began long, long ago. And so that's what this series is all about. Who are we? Who is God? What is he doing? And, and how is he calling us to partner with him in this mission? So today we're exploring this second part of the great commandment, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, Josh talked about the first part of this command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, we're talking about this because it is part of our vision and it's part of our mission as well. And so if you missed uh, last week or the, the, the week before, uh, catch up on the podcast, because especially last week, Josh talked about some things that are really important to who we are as a church and that are really foundational to the specific vision and mission that, that we really feel like God is giving us. So today's main text uh, comes from Philippians 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. I'm using the message 
version of this. Uh, I typically use the NIV, but I feel like this, I feel like sometimes with the NIV, the way that the language is translated, the scriptures are a little bit clunky, and so I don't always love the message, but I really, really like this, um, this particular passage in the message translation. So it says, if you've gotten anything, this is Paul writing to the church in uh, Philippi um, to encourage them. He says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart and if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. So, where are my Enneagram friends? People at Dwell really love the Enneagram. I love that. Um, I'm a five, so everything in my life needs more work. (laughs) Nothing is ever complete in my life. Um, I, I read this, this is not a quote by me, I read this about fives, and somebody said, interactions with people drains my resources to the point that I feel like I will suffer catastrophic depletion. I don't know that I feel that, you know, that extreme, but um, the idea of talking to somebody that I don't know sometimes physically makes me anxious. Uh, where are my twos? Do, I, or do we have any twos in here? Jenny, are you a two? Okay, you're a five. You're a five also. Sisters, yes. Um, okay, so of my mother-in-law is here today. I don't know if she's in here. I think my mother-in-law is a two. I don't know. She's never taken the test before, but I really think she's a two. Of all the Enneagram types, I think twos are the best Christians. If you know anything about twos, now I'm kind of, I'm kidding, but like twos... <laughs> Twos are the people who are just genuinely, like genuinely fulfilled by helping people. Like they are driven by this desire and this need within them to help people. People who don't know, you people who don't know about the Enneagram are like, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about this morning. Um, We can have a conversation later. Um, So twos find a lot of fulfillment and joy in helping others. For as long as I can remember, like my whole life growing up, I've always been a little bit obsessed with personality tests, so it's really, like, amazing that now the whole world is obsessed with personality tests, too, in in adulthood. I love it. Um, Honestly, though, like, our our cultural draw towards understanding ourselves and kind of, like, finding ourselves and learning more and more and more about ourselves, it kind of highlights this quality of us as Americans that I I really love about us as as Americans, but it really highlights our value of individualism. Um, When I lived overseas, I was so constantly um, bombarded with this awareness of how Western I am, like how American I really am. I love my personal space. If you have ever been to like Latin America or some cultures in Europe, Um, People stand really close. They talk really close. Um, They're close talkers for my Seinfeld fans, my Seinfeld friends. Um, But I I love my personal space, and it it took me a while 
to really get comfortable. Now, like, I'm very comfortable overseas and in cross-cultural contexts, but there are some things, like, when you live overseas in a place and you're bombarded constantly by just this clash of values, it's not bad, it's just different ways of living. You just become so aware of the things that are deeply ingrained in you that you don't even realize are there. So I love my personal space. I love my independence. I love sleeping alone in a big bed. Now, I mean, I share a bed with my husband, obviously, but when he gets up in the morning and I don't get up in the morning, I'm not complaining, okay? Um, I love to sleep in a big bed. I love having a large closet. I love getting my overpriced coffee to go when I'm running all of my errands. I just, I love America. I, I love, you know, I'm, I'm a very individualistic person, and it's just very deeply ingrained in, in my bones and who I am. Americans culturally are just this very individualistic people, and that doesn't go for every single one of us, but as a whole, culturally, we are this way. About three-quarters or so of the rest of the world would identify as collectivistic cultures. So people who are individualistic tend towards understanding human beings as separate individuals from the collective culture or from the larger group with separate and unique identities, whereas collectivism really understands human beings as part of a whole. So you are part of a community, you are part of a larger group, and each person's individual identity is deeply rooted and weaved in the whole, the, the larger whole of their, their family and their community. So individualists really value independence, or collectivists value interdependence. Uh, if you think of this really as a continuum rather than like a black-white reality, you're not just one or the other, People, every culture really tends to kind of fall somewhere in between individualistic and collectivistic. Uh, some cultures kind of tend more towards one or the other. Americans, on average, lean to the extreme individualistic side. Again, not everybody. We are made up of lots of different people from lots of different cultures. And this doesn't make us good or bad, but just understanding who we are and how we're wired and how we're programmed um, is really, really important to understanding how we perceive the world, to understanding how we behave. This is why I love personality assessments, because it, like, it gives you a snapshot and it gives you a deeper understanding of why you are the way that you are. Like that there is a reason that you are either... Uh, or, or like that you, you behave differently in, in different environments, whether you're introverted or more extroverted, or you're, uh, for those of you who know like the Myers-Briggs stuff, you're more of a, like you're a high P or you're a high J, whatever, it just gives you a good understanding of um, the way that you interact with other people. And I love that. But it, just understanding ourselves and understanding how we come from and, and how we're wired allows us to understand how we interpret things, especially like the scriptures, which were written by people um, in ancient times in primarily collectivistic cultures. So the scriptures were written by people who were part of a collective group and, and collective culture rather than a more individualistic culture. I promise I'm going somewhere with this. The National Center for Secondary Education and Transition describes these values of individualism and, and collectivism this way. So collectivistic cultures value interdependence where individualistic cultures value independence, obligation to others versus individual rights, reliance on group versus self-sufficiency, adherence to traditional values and maintaining traditional practices as opposed to uh, being true to your own self and your own values and your own beliefs and this continual 
um, striving for self-progress in more individualistic cultures, fulfilling roles within group and collectivistic cultures, group achievement, competition between groups. There's this whole list here that I've written down. I'm not going to read every single one to you, but they do, they 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 really um, this is laundry list, and not every. Not every quality is here on this chart. I have it here in my notes. But they have this laundry list of values highlighted in collectivistic cultures versus individualistic cultures. And in short, American individualism, the ideal is for all people to be able to freely, like we value making our own choices for ourselves. We value our own personal rights. In most collectivistic cultures, people make decisions based on what's best for the family or even what they feel is expected of them by other people. So ancient Israel was a collectivistic culture in the ancient Near East. And so when we read these commands, even like in the New Testament, they're, they're quotations of the Old Testament. And so we have to understand, like, in, in their original context, it's important to understanding what, it, what did this mean to the people then? And we need to know also what does it mean for us now, but understanding the context of how do they understand this? How was God communicating it to them in their context and their history and their time? And what are the timeless principles uh, versus the, the, the cultural and contextual principles that we need to understand from this. So for the Israelites to love neighbor, because they were part of this collective group, neighbor meant to love their fellow, their fellow people, the, the, the people within their own nation, the, their fellow Israelites or who they understood as neighbor, making the command to love their own people locally rather than, than as a universal command. As individualists, most of us would understand this command to love neighbor, this idea of neighbor as more of a universal, you know, everybody's our neighbor. Everybody that we, that we run into and, and rub shoulders with, they are our neighbors. Whether we work with them or just pass by them on the street, they are our neighbors. God also, however, gives this command to them in the Old Testament so that there was no misunderstanding that, Dear Israelites, you should also love the foreigner and the sojourner among you as your neighbor, or, or love them as you love yourself. And so they, they kind of have these two separate commands and how they understand like how, um, how their society is structured. They have their neighbors, and then they have their foreigners. And yes, they're, like, they're expected to love both, but to them, this idea of neighbor versus um, people coming from other lands who were dwelling among them, they didn't necessarily consider as neighbor. So in the New Testament scriptures, when Jesus summarizes, when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, he quotes this Old Testament passage to love one's neighbor as oneself. We, we know this great commandment. He's asked, you know, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But he throws a twist in there when, the, when this Pharisee asks him, and who is my neighbor? He asked him to, to just define who, who his neighbor is. And Jesus tells this famous parable of the Good Samaritan, where a poor man is robbed, beaten, and left for dead, and two religious leaders pass by him without lending him a hand. And finally, a Samaritan, who's someone who is hated by the Jewish people, hated by the Israelites, stops to help the man, puts himself out time, money, and energy in order to make sure that his needs are taken care of. I bet that Samaritan was a two. What do you guys think? This Pharisee thought he was being clever in asking Jesus to define who his neighbor is, but Jesus points out the hypocrisy in his life that this man may not have ever even really known was there. Maybe he did, and maybe he was just trying to, to get away with justifying 
um, something, some way of, of not having to go out of his way to love people that he didn't really want to. But it could have been also that Jesus was pointing out this hypocrisy that he didn't even see in his life. We've all got these blind spots and prejudices and hypocrisy in our lives, um, and it's really hard to identify it within ourselves. And so um, this week I, I came across this quote from a Bible scholar uh, whose commentary I was reading. And he says, when love is turned inward, it prostitutes the capacity to love that God has given his child. Love properly manifests itself only when the one doing the loving becomes a channel through which God loves someone else. And so God's love was never meant to be hoarded by us. It was never meant to just be for us individually. It is, yes, for us individually, but it's also we are also called to extend that love outward. And so today we're talking about how we are called to take this love of God that he has extended to us and extend it generously outward toward our neighbors. So here is, our, here is where we are currently as a culture. We are in general individualistic, even if many of us don't come from individualistic family structures, which means that we are concerned with self, self-progress, self-care, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, finding and knowing oneself, hello Enneagram, self-promotion, hello Instagram, living independently and we value our individual rights. And none of these things are inherently negative, they're not. American individualism has led to some amazing discoveries and innovation um, that have led to really some incredible things in humanity, not just for our culture, but for the rest of the world. And our value of individualism, it drives us to look within our own lives to become better people. But we need to be aware of where our blind spots are, to know where we're weak and vulnerable, not just as individuals, but as a community of, of faith, as well as, as a faith community. In 2018, Christianity Today published an article about the value of raising kids uh, that care for others. This, this idea of raising caring kids is, is, is how they say it. So this guy named Richard Wiseboard is a psychologist, and he's a, he's a member of the faculty at the Harvard Grad School of Education. Uh, and he founded an organization called Make Caring Common. And the article that Christianity Today uh, published a couple of years ago states this. They say that studies have shown that American parents in particular continue to press achievement and success as harbingers of happiness for their children, valuing good test scores and college placement over empathy and involvement in the community. Harvard psychologist Richard Wiseboard found that middle and high schoolers he surveyed shared similar values as their parents. 48% ranked achievement as their top value while only 22% prioritize caring for others. Studies find that American adults do want kids to be decent and caring, especially in their immediate communities, but that they're far less concerned about a commitment to the greater society's well-being as they are with their children's academic achievement. So I think we can surmise that people church-wide and even probably um, community-wide agree that the command to love your neighbor as yourself is, is an important one. It's a value that Christ embodied and that he commanded as well. But the problem is that something can be deemed as important but not be embodied as a value. 
So it turns out that we can do a really good job at talking about principles without ever translating those principles into practice. And this is a weakness of mine because I love to like philosophize. I love to talk. Um, I love to, to, I'm a visionary, so I love to think like big picture. I love to talk about theories and ideas. Um, and the temptation there or the, the pitfall there is that oftentimes um, my husband and I both, Josh and I both are, are like this, is, is that we have the greatest intentions of taking these ideas and translating them into practice, but we have to be careful and guarded so that we don't always talk, 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 talk about these ideas and not ever really do anything with them. So let me back step just a tiny little bit and talk about um, families who immigrate to, from collectivist cultures to the U.S. Because this... Um, this is really interesting to me. When people from collectivist cultures come to the U.S., one of the, one of the big culture shocks that they experience is how families here just don't operate the way that families in their home culture do. People are focused on their individual lives and success more than they are with the lives of those in their families. You know, unless, of course, you're talking about your own children. Um, but there are these just clashes and values that larger groups of immigrants um, tend to gravitate towards each other and find and, and found these little like uh, they gravitate towards one another and they form these little sub communities within the larger community. The same is true though for Americans. If you go overseas, Americans always find one another. So whatever country you go to, there are always these little pocket communities of Americans. Uh, we call them expats, not immigrants. Whatever they're they're immigrants. Um, going, uh, they, they find one another. When I lived in Ecuador, there was a, a whole community called the Gringo Community. And there was like, there was a whole, it's what it was called. Everybody in town knew it as the Gringo Community. And people are attracted to one another because of their shared values. But when these immigrants who come to the U.S. Um, or, or even go to other countries that are um, that, that share these same kind of indiv individualistic values, when they begin to assimilate and they have children or their children grow up and they have children, those second and third generation Americans begin to embody the values of the American culture in ways that their parents often couldn't or didn't know how to or just didn't want to. And they begin to think and speak and behave like the culture at large, like their new home culture. Have you ever watched the show Kim's Convenience? on Netflix? No? Sunday homework. <laughs> Sunday homework. Promise you won't be disappointed. It's a comedy about, um, it was, I think it was a Canadian show. Um, it was about, that's why nobody knows about it. Um, it's about uh, this Korean family that owns a convenience store uh, in Canada, and it's just about, like, their, their life. And these parents are very Korean, very culturally Korean. They kind of speak English, but not a whole lot of English. But their children are so Americanized and so individualistic, and the, the, the father wants the daughter to take over the convenience store, and she tells him, I'm never going to take over this convenience store, Dad. This is not what I want to do. I want to pursue art. This is my passion. And so there's just these cultural clashes within their own family. And it's such a good show. It's like 30-minute episodes. It's really funny. I promise you'll love it. But, um, but this idea of, like, 
the longer that we are part of something, the more we embody those values. This is the same is true for Christians, that the longer that we're part of the family of God and the longer that we're immersed in the values and principles of the kingdom, the more we will begin to embody those values over time. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about in Philippians 2. And he's saying, in essence, that if these, he's saying to these believers, if you have benefited at all from what you have received from Christ, that you are to embody these values and live the principles on behalf of one another. So if you have been transformed, if you've been changed, if you've received anything by what Christ has done for you, you need to be living outward. You need to be expressing this kind of love for one another. There's a couple named Mark and Lisa Scandrett who co-authored a book um, that's called Belonging and Becoming, Creating a Thriving Family Culture. And in this book, they say that a family must maintain a balance between a common vision and routine practices in order to live out their values. They posit that a good starting place for a vision of what makes a thriving family is a place of belonging and becoming, where each person feels safe, cared for, and loved, and supported to develop who they are for the good of the world. So I think this, this idea of like being a family and, and, and having this kind of shared vision, but creating a, a safe place to be able to practice, intentionally practice and embody those values really applies to the body of Christ. We hold these vision and these values as a collective group of people, but in order to effectively live them out and to live out the vision that Christ has called us to, we need to be intentional about establishing ways of practicing the values that we hold. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians regarding spiritual gifts, we find this in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks to them about the role of individual believers. And he enforces this idea that's really contrary to those of us who are deeply rooted in, in American individualism. And he talks about the collective. He says, we are all part of one body. Each of us has an important role to play. And he kind of turns things on its head and, and he says, the people who are the weakest among us are the most important. They are some of the most important. In the same way that you protect certain parts of your body more than others, the people among us who are the weakest are no less important than the people who are the strongest among you. So he says, each of us has a role to play in this body and in this community, and if one of us is not doing our part, the entire body suffers. So he talks about this collective ideal of the body of Christ, that if there is one of us who is not, not just pulling our weight, but not living into our calling and exercising our gifts, that the body is suffering because of our absence or just our withdrawal. And we can apply that principle, I, I think, to the, the people that God has given us to serve and to love. There are people around us who are suffering and there are people who are just curious about God. They're, I mean, there's, this is a very, um, like, mystical culture here in L.A. People have questions, and people are curious, and, and people want, um, they're, they're desiring to know, they, they may not articulate it this way, but they are desiring to know the truth that is out there about something. And if we're not aware of these people, um, or if we're not actively loving and serving them, we miss out on a really incredible opportunity to be blessed. But also our neighbors miss out on this opportunity to encounter the love of God. 
Um, Proverbs says that um, the one who refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. And so as we bring um, hope and love and care to people, we find that we're refreshed. And we don't do it for the, for the sake of being blessed. We do it because we're compelled by God's love. But there is this really powerful thing that happens when we, um, when we refresh people and we serve people and that we find that we are refreshed and energized because we're doing what we're designed to do, to serve and to love and to be part of God's kingdom. But loving our neighbors begins with being aware of our blind spots as well. So what are culturally, what are some of the blind spots or the pitfalls, maybe is better stated, of individualism? This is not a laundry list. This is just a few things um, that I came up with in doing some research and just some, some study on my own in prayer. But one of the things that was that we're self-centered. We're self-centered, and so we put our needs and our desires over and above the needs and desires of other people, which often just causes us to overlook the need that's right in front of us. Um, we can often be lonely. Individualistic people often tend to have fewer people in their lives uh, who they're deeply invested in and people who deeply invest in them as well. Division. My rights are more important than the group's rights. Or my rights are more important than your rights. I'm fighting for my individual rights. So you have all these people fighting for their own rights, and it creates a competitive environment where everyone's just fighting for their own perceived rights. And then anxiety, this constant push to achieve more and do more and more and more and earn more and do greater things can lead to high anxiety, which can render us unable to look past our own fears and our own insecurities. Now, I am distinguishing between clinical anxiety and not uh, clinical anxiety. This is not cl uh, clinical anxiety. This is, um, this is anxiety that's often brought on by our obligations or our responsibilities and this pressure, this cultural pressure to just do more and serve more. So how is this, this love, you know, being aware of some of these things that tend to be blind spots um, in our lives and in our culture, how can we um, see loving our neighbors manifested in real-life relationships? So I think, that our, um, I think that our culture overall has a really shallow definition of what love means. I think that we reduce it. Um, we, we reduce love to feelings or affection. Um, when most of the time, really, love is a choice. It's an act. I want to be careful about how I communicate this because I, I don't want it to come across the wrong way. But, like, for people who are married, the honeymoon doesn't last forever. Like, this is the best an analogy that I can think of. At some point, like, you wake up and you look at your spouse and you have to make a choice to love that person, recognizing that love is a choice. It, it's an act on behalf of somebody else. That feeling is not going to last forever. And so if you have chosen to love somebody, at some point you have to choose to continue to love that person. The same is true for loving our enemies, and Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You don't feel deep, great love and affection for your enemies. And so loving them is a choice. It is a choice to pray for them. It is a choice to act on their behalf when they have not acted on your behalf. So far from merely entertaining feelings to love 
is to act. It's a choice to act on behalf of somebody else's benefit, often laying down our own preferences or our own rights or privileges or needs in order to help somebody else who's got a need or who who's experienced an injustice. So when we live like this, when we understand love as a choice, right, like God chose to love us, he came and lived among us, um, he has this deep, um, just unconditional, unending love for us that I don't know that in this life we will ever really truly be able to understand, but we do know that he chooses to love us, right? When we turn away from him, he still continues to, to choose to love us. So the outcomes of loving people this way, understanding how we have been loved, is that number one, it extends the love of God, which we have freely received to other people. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 8, freely you have received, so freely give it away. Uh, Number two, it's a denial of self, which combats pride. Uh, And the result of that is that we, we just look more like Christ. We look more like Jesus did because we embody his values more and more. Uh, in Luke 9.23, he says, um, if you would follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This is part of dying to self. And uh, number three, it models for other people how to be agents of God's love, which is discipleship. We model for the people in our community, for our children, for our neighbors. Um, Matthew 28.19, Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of the nations. And so this is part of that discipleship is Jesus modeled for his disciples in his earthly ministry how to live, how to pray, how to share the gospel, how to interact with people, how to do all of these things. And that is a huge part of discipleship is modeling, not just teaching and preaching and singing and all these things, but modeling the life of Jesus for the people that we are actively discipling, whether they're believers yet or not. And so, um, That's great, but like, how does this work out in daily life? So John Mark Comer is a pastor in the Portland, Oregon area, area, and um, I listened to, um, Josh and I have been listening to a podcast with him um, and another pastor, Mark Sayers, who's from Australia, and it's called uh, This Cultural Moment, and it's a really fascinating podcast. just really amazing podcast. If you're looking for something really insightful to listen to, I would, I would definitely recommend it. It's called This Cultural Moment. But he says, um, he was talking about how we engage people in our culture who are often disillusioned uh, and who need God in their lives. And he said, he said, a mentor of mine once told me, lead to the ache. And um, so if we kind of unpack what that means, like, how we engage with the people around us who are aching, like what are their points of pain or what are their desires? What are their, like what are the things that they deeply ache for? Like this is what he means, lead to the ache. What are the things that are aching deeply within them? Where are they exhausted? And how can we look beyond ourselves and be an agent of God's love in their lives? And the only way to really do that besides like, you know, like just seeing these surface level needs um, is spending time with people, investing in people's lives. So how can we extend this missio day into people's lives, mission of God into the, the circumstances that people are experiencing? 
going back to the point on church as a family, am I a safe place where people can be cared for and loved and where people can begin to heal? Jesus in Matthew 29 says to these crowds that he's teaching, he says, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn how to live freely. My worship team can come on back up and prepare to close and for communion. To be active in the mission of God is to be constantly extending this invitation for people who are hurting and broken to encounter Jesus, who brings rest and teaches us to live freely and lightly. I don't have to have all the answers for my neighbors. I don't have to fix the the world's problems, but I do, I am called to look beyond my own preferences and my own interests to be an avenue by which people can see Jesus. And for a lot of people that you know, you might be the only one who can do that. So who comes to mind this morning, if anybody, that God might be asking you to pay attention to? You know, there are times where like we, we can sometimes help people just enough to, to feel like we've really fulfilled our obligations, but not enough to really get our hands dirty. Not enough to really give up our TV time in order to, to serve somebody else to go beyond ourselves. So what can you actively do for the people God is putting on your heart or mind this week? Amy Lively um, is a minister who also authored a book called How to Love Your Neighbor Without Being Weird, which is really important, I think. She has this this short list of ten things. I'm going to close momentarily. But she says, number one, pray for them. Genuinely pray for them. That they would know Christ by knowing you and that you would have the opportunity to develop relationships with the people around you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, wherever. Number two, learn about their lives. And you might have to have the embarrassing conversation that says, I should know your name, but I don't. Can you tell me what your name is? Number three, Give a gift. A small gift is just a really great icebreaker. Um, At our last house in Kentucky, we had a neighbor who had a dog that barked all day and all night, all day and all night. And so there were a couple times that I had to go over there and knock on their door and ask them to bring their dog inside. And, And I found out, like, this woman was a single mom, and she was just, she's overwhelmed and didn't realize that her dog was outside barking all night long. And so I, I, I felt felt for her. I felt compassion for her, and so I know that they love their dog, so I ran to the store a couple of days later and just got some dog treats and dropped them off at their house. It's kind of a, like, like I, I know that you're doing your best, and you love your dog, and I love my dog, and so here's just, just, a, just a little something often goes a long way. Serve somebody intentionally in the community at a food pantry or an after-school program or a homeless shelter or a nursing home or anywhere that you can serve and connect with people. Call people that you haven't seen in a while just to see how they're doing. If you've got elderly neighbors or single moms that live in your neighborhood, 
Say, hey, I'm going to the store. Do you need anything? Carry your neighbor's trash cans back to their house. Just help them in a tangible and simple way. Eat with them. Invite your neighbors to eat with you. Uh, One-on-one, or if that's too awkward, invite a whole bunch of neighbors to come over and just have a meal together once in a while. Play with their kids. Write notes to people. Even something simple, like the flowers in your yard are so pretty, they light up the entire neighborhood. And host people. Invite them into your home. Hospitality is a huge way that we extend God's love to people. One of my my favorite ideas is if you have a front porch, um, I've got some friends that once a month they do what they call porch coffee on their front porch, and they just invite their whole street to come and have coffee on their front porch. Um, It's a low expectation. It's hanging out. It's just having coffee, but it's making connections with people um, whom God loves and whom God is calling us to love as well. So I'll post this on Facebook and and Instagram this afternoon, but in short, loving our neighbors, this article, so that you can read it if you'd like, but loving our neighbors begins with a simple act of looking beyond ourselves and just doing something, doing something to extend the love of God into their lives. And lastly, Carrie Newhoff is um, a, a Christian leader and speaker. And he says, left unchecked, selfish ambition turns servants of God into servants of themselves. In just a moment, we're going to take communion. And um, I want us to just to remember that um, God invites us to his table not because of our qualifications or because of our worthiness, but because he loves. And it's, it's, it's him who, it's, it's his table. And he invites us and he also invites them. He also invites our neighbors. And so as we, um, as we partake in communion this morning, I, I want us to remember this, that God has set a table for us and invited him to commune with him. And this is obviously a, um, you know, this, we, we do this in remembrance of Christ's death. But the, the evening before, the evening that he was crucified, the evening that, that he was arrested, he dined with the person who betrayed him. And he knew that it would happen, and he still opened his table up to them. Um, and so this is a challenge for all of us that as we have received, we are also called to give. And so would you stand and and pray with me? The only request that we have with communion is that you just don't take it by yourself. Um, It's not a rule. It's just a, you know, we just, we encourage you to do it with somebody else. So Father, we, um, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us, God. Lord, the things that we're talking about are, they're not just nice things, God. They're important, eternal things that make an important, eternal difference. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us. Help us to be aware of the things in our lives that we need to be aware of in order that we can love you better and love people better. In Jesus' name. This morning as we were worshiping before the sermon, 
I, um, I felt like the Lord showed me this picture of the city of LA and Santa Monica and I saw out of this school, out of, out of Dwell Church, out of our gatherings, this like fireworks. It's not like one of those that goes up into the sky and explodes, but it's just one of those fireworks that just sits on the ground. It's just this like continual stream of like spark that just doesn't stop and went all the way up into the sky and just this continuous firework and and I um, I thought what does this mean and and um and I felt like the Lord said led me to the passage where as he was leading the Israelites out of Egypt he led them the scriptures say as a as a pillar of um, or as fire and smoke and so in front of them always was this pillar of fire this cloud of smoke and that's how they knew it was God and where they were leading him, where, where he was leading them. And I felt like the Lord said, the city of LA will know who I am because of Dwell Church. The things that we're doing are important things. And this is the Lord's mission that he is, that he is orienting us to. Not just creative statements that we're coming up with, but we really believe it that as the Lord leads us and as we um, follow him in faithfulness, that this city will know who he is because of Dwell Church. We love you guys. And we ask that you would just continue to pray with us. We've shared with you. We feel that the Lord is really just calling us to this, um, to just be people of prayer. So as you go about your week, just pray for our church, pray for our city, pray for our community. Let us know how we can pray for you. And we'll see you next Sunday.